Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts that guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by sponsors like Johnsonville Foods, SwineWeb.com, Swine Robotics, Innovative Heating, the manufacturers of Hoghearth, and SwineTech, the award-winning creator of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how you can reduce piglet crushing and your overall pre-winning mortalities by nearly 25%, visit SwineTechnologies.com. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Today, we're going to talk about selecting and preparing gilts for success with Mr. Ron Ketchum. Thanks for joining us today, Ron. My pleasure. My pleasure. Excited to talk about this topic. We've we've been on a previous call kind of digging into some of the things you've been looking into, and this has been an area of opportunity that I don't think a lot of people have focused on as of late with some of the survivability studies that the university is doing together. So let's bring this to the forefront of our thoughts today and really dig into guilt selection and preparation. Um, before we get into that, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your career and how you got involved with the swine industry. Uh, University of Missouri graduate in 1973. Uh, had several opportunities for jobs after that. When I was at school, I got to work with Dr. Billy Day and his team on that did a lot of research on uh, guilt development. They did some stuff on on ovulations and controlled ovulations. And I remember uh, checking five or six hundred gilts every day for heat cycles so we could do studies with them when I did my on a work study that I had with them. So kind of got me into the industry a little bit. My first job was with a genetics company developing their AI breeding program and uh, selecting genetics for that. So I bred my first sour artificially in 1969 and then developed that program and then saw it over the next 20 years become a, a thing that's common based today. I remember teaching classes at Purdue on how to collect boars, extend semen and breed sows. That was in the mid eighties. So that got me started. I, I then worked at, I, I did taught myself ventilation and facility design, spent a lot of time in barns and uh, then got into records and I always thought whenever I went to a farm to help them figure out a problem, records were important. So I remember uh, going all through the pig tra- training in the schools they had back in the 80s and uh, being able to take uh, reports, cutting slice pieces out of it, go to the farm and say, okay, here's what I see as a problem. How are we going to work on it? So I've always been, I like to be prepared when I go to a farm. I know what I'm kind of be looking for. What do we got to fix versus trying to find something? And that led me then to uh, be a consultant 15 years for a large uh, feed company. Then I, in 2000, 2000, I moved to Fremont, Nebraska, became part of Swine Management Services. They were interested in selling the business. So in 2002, a partner of my, Mark Ricks, we bought it. So we've been, uh, you know, 18 years with SMS. Uh, we developed a benchmarking program. It's pretty well known around the country, uh, uh, North America, and even some work we're doing in, in Australia. Uh, Mark and I are getting up in age, so we sold our company uh, the end of September 2019 to Metafarms. So now we're a division of Metafarms, and they will hopefully continue the uh, the, the company 
proceeding on. Uh, Mark is working part-time and I plan to go to part-time working here as we get to the end of the year. So uh, that's kind of been my career. I've enjoyed it. Uh, passion, pigs have been my passion and uh, helping producers to do better. So uh, I currently work with uh, about 450,000 sales on a consulting basis of doing analysis of the records and consulting with them. So I've uh, been quite busy and uh, it's kind of fun. And I'm going to try to taper that back a little bit starting the end of the year and uh, work with a few of them and uh, try to get a little more time to uh, travel and do some things uh, that I like that I haven't done because of my work ethic and working in the swine industry. Yeah, I can definitely say how you'd be pretty busy with 450,000 sows that you're continually looking at reports and trends and so what are some of the things that can be done with guilt selection that can improve the likelihood for success for each guilt? I, I think it, it really starts as we've noticed this last few years, sow death loss has gone up. Uh, we've, we've seen uh, productivity increase, but we've seen uh, retention of uh, younger parodies has gone down. Uh, we've seen a higher culling rate of our younger parodies and a higher death loss. So it, it's something that we've kind of neglected you know, I think uh, we buy some gilts, we, uh, we put them in a development area, then when it becomes breeding eligible age, which that's quite a lot of variation, uh, somebody starts breeding on gilts and, uh, and basically, well, we need an extra gilt or two bread this week to make target. So I don't think we've really made that a high priority of what is the quality of the animal, is the, the structure correct of the animal, are they set up to optimize their productivity and give me the most pigs they can during their lifetime here? So I think it's an area that's been kind of neglected in research and in, in a lot of farms. Uh, the top end farms have figured it out. They have people dedicated to that process where some of the other farms have uh, taken it for granted that that's just a gelt and I got to get her bred. And, and I, I think it's an area that needs a whole lot more work. Okay. So what are some of the costs that, come from this? So when people neglect guilt selection and preparation, I mean, where are they going to, where are they going to lose out? Well, I think you see it in two things is lifetime productivity. How many pigs can I get out of that animal lifetime? And we know it takes about three parodies of, uh, of pigs to just to cover the developmental costs and the purchase costs of that animal. So we got to get there and then try to get more animals after that. And as I mentioned earlier, the uh, higher culling rate of these younger animals and death loss, I was asked a while back, what's the cost for a dead animal? And I did some estimating, looking at the cost of the guilt, the development, the, the uh, lack of the cull animal sales. And in most cases, the animals are pregnant when they die. The loss of the income from that pig, from the pigs that litter that she had, I think it's around $1,000 for each pig that dies animal that dies that are that have pigs in them cost to the unit that's a thousand dollars a lot of money you know so uh we, we've got to take it be, be more we need to be better at that guilt development process to reduce that losses and get more lo lifetime productivity so do you think in some ways as an industry we undervalue the replacement cost of that sour that guilt oh yeah definitely do uh, a lot of times in the record programs we don't even see the guilt appear till she's bred so it's hard for us to evaluate what percentage of those animals they bought actually made it to their first litter or first breeding. And we, in a lot of cases, we don't know those costs back there, what it's really, what it's really costing uh, in most of the rec just taking stuff from the record programs. Gotcha. So like when you're, when you're going into these south farms and you're working with these teams to kind of train them on, on how they can better select and prepare 
a guilt for success. What are some of the things that, that you talk about and some of the things that you train on? Well, basically, there's some things is get the animals in younger, uh, put them on a guilt developing ration versus making them a finisher pig. Uh, there's some studies that say we can improve feet and dew claw uh, problems by on a development ration versus being on a finisher ration. Uh, also, selecting animals that are extremely structurally correct. You know, uh, we have a lot of uh, one of the biggest reasons for for uh, death loss and culling of some animals now is lameness and injury. And so if we don't have an animal that's structurally correct to start with, we're not going to see her last longer. So it's even looking at, at looking at the toes or the toes even. Is she she correctly moving? Uh, that that's kind of important. Uh, well, people people don't understand that actually guilt development starts about 40 days after the parent mom of the guilt is bred. That all has something to do with guilt development and uh, uterine crowding, where the pig is small at birth weight. There's several studies that talk about uh, gilts that are less than a two and a half pounds at birth weight will not be as productive as the gilt that weighed three and a half pounds at birth. So just simply going back and looking at selecting the biggest gilts for my maternal animals, uh, biggest pigs at birth has a huge impact on the lifetime productivity of that animal. Um, then we've got to make sure they're selected, they're correct, we develop them correctly. And then uh, worry about what age do we start more exposure? That should be probably in that 24, 25 weeks of age with an intent to breed them in that 32 to 36 day, 36 week window, which again, uh, there's been several studies looking at if we breed them too young, they fall out. If we breed them too old, uh, they will not stay in the herd very long and their productivity records are low. So it's getting them in the right window. Uh, looking at uh, crate exposure and uh, skip eats. Uh, a lot of studies showing if we can uh, have a recorded skip heat of the gilt, we can gain about a half a pig on that first litter. If we can have her in a crate for a 14 plus days before she's bred, we can gain in, in some of the studies we've done, commercial studies, another you know, 0 0.7 to 0 0.75 pigs. So there's well over a pig available that first litter by just somebody heat checking the animals, daily recording heats, putting into her crate for 14 plus days before we breed her can give us that number. And we know that the first guilt, the, the first litter of that guilt determines her lifetime productivity. So if she has that 13, 14 uh, total pigs on her first litter, she's gonna have us more lifetime versus the gal that had 10 or 12. And it's all in how we handle her pre-breeding determines what her lifetime productivity will be. Gotcha, and I was looking at some, some data from National Hog Farmer that broke down mortality rates, stillborn rates, sow mortality rates, and, and turnover costs. And when they took together the, the cost of that and then the average in the industry, and what it sounds like is they're probably undervaluing the sow mortality replacement cost, mm -hmm. but it added up to be roughly about $441 recurring each year in lost opportunity from those categories. And I'm imagining if we don't select and prepare gilts on the front end, as she ages, the ability for us to recover some of that lost opportunity is probably diminished. Oh, diminished a lot. Yeah, uh, of course. And, and, and again, we, we have not dedicated dollars and people to that developing area. When you take a look at the top producing farms, the farms of those 30 plus, they invested years ago in guild development. Uh, they like to bring them in at feeder pig weight. They, they control their diets. They have people back there daily that do the boar exposure, the heat checking, 
the recording of the information. So when that gilt's ready for the breeding area, we've done all the basic things we need to do to optimize their productivity. And so there is an investment in people and facilities to be able to do this right. And, and I guess if I bring it, maybe, maybe it's too far down, but is the way that we look at the GDU today and gilt preparation more or less a glorified finisher uh, and, and it should be more? Uh, yeah, in some cases it has been, or there's still farms out there that have an isolation barn. The gilts come in, they're there 30 to 60 days, then they move up to the breeding area. And again, they haven't done that prep time that needs to be done and dedicated the right the right things to do. Again, it, it it's the, the top farms have dedicated people to do that. And just like uh, on uh, boar exposure, you know, if we can give that uh, gilt uh, a minute to a minute and a half of daily boar exposure, we will get a higher percent of them to cycle within a less than 30 day period. If we don't, we've got a lot of these gilts to stay around in that pen longer. Again, open sow days is costing you a lot of money, where if we dedicate the time and the energy, we can get them through there quicker. So farms that I work with, we try to do a, min a maximum 30 to 35 days of daily boar exposure to the gilts. If we haven't found them in heat and moved them to the, uh, the crates for crate exposure, uh, we either cull them or we may take and give them PG 600. We give them another 10 days and they're on the truck to the cull, on the cull truck. Because again, they're not going to fit into where we're at and they're costing me a lot of extra money because they're not eligible for breeding, okay? There's, there's kind of some windows that have kind of been established we like to see those animals a minimum 300 to 350 pounds at, at breeding time. We know if it's under that 300 pounds, they're not gonna last as long. They will not do well on that first parity. If they're over that 350 pounds, uh, again, they've taken extra time, which costs us money and their lifetime productivity goes down. They may have a great first litter, but they don't have but one or two more and then they're culled from the farm. And there's just a simple way that we can look at weight. We don't have to have a scale. Uh, there's some data out there that looks at if we just have a, a tape or a piece of string that's a minimum 34 and a half inches long, we go from flank to flank of the gilt. That means she's at least 300 pounds. So all he has to do is carry that in her pocket. When they got this gilt that's eligible, she's had her skip, she's had her crate exposure, but she's still underweight. We say, hey, we're going to wait till the next time she comes into heat but just a simple rope 34 and a half inches long can determine whether she's eligible or not based on looking at her weight. So simple little things like that that can be done uh, that make sure that quality animal got mated that week to go into the farm. So you referenced earlier the data that suggested if a piglet born that was, you know, birthed to be a gilt was below two and a half pounds, then it was less likely to succeed. Are, are we seeing, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong there, but are we seeing not enough, I guess, not enough filtering of, of gilts that are being sold out to commercial farms? Or are we having too many that are slipping through the cracks that maybe shouldn't? Uh, definitely we are, because a lot of farms now have gone to buy an isoween gilts from their, their genetic source. So here's gilts within a week of age. Uh, how much uh, work has been done to filter out those pigs there. And if you watch, if you look at some of the numbers, it's looking at about 70% of those gilts originally, right, may make it to the breeding area. So we're losing about 30%. But we know nothing about their history. 
you know, mm-hmm. uh, if, if they just would, if, if the animal is born a little bit light and they keep them a few more days in the pharaoh house, here's a guilt that, uh, that, that we may end up breeding that potentially she's not going to be good lifetime. So I think there needs to be more scrutiny made, even far back, maybe any guilt that's born under two and a half pounds, we, they shouldn't be eligible for replacement guilt to be sold. Uh, that's something maybe our genetic companies need to look more at and uh, to, to help out the end producer that's buying that guilt from them. So uh, when you buy an isoween guilt, uh, there, you, there's, you know, you may, they may have counted the underline, maybe, and, uh, and there are sound that day that we get them. But what happens after that has a lot to do with what retention we have of those animals. A, a lot of these multiplication sites, they're recording birth weights, aren't they? Uh, some of them are, but more and more in the nucleus and the uh, uh, farms from the genetic companies, not, not in a lot of their multipliers. They, gotcha. Uh, they probably aren't doing that information now. Just for productivity, they should be eliminating some of those like pigs, but a lot of times they're worried about the number of pigs that are weaned, not the quality of the pigs that are weaned that we need to be worrying about. For sure. And it'd be kind of nice if I was a producer that purchased, you know, a couple hundred replacement gilts to be able to see a breakdown on percentage or something that tells me, yep, yeah, yeah, 4% of these are under two and a half. Okay. Like almost a, a birth weight distribution to understand maybe what I'm getting. Um, maybe we just don't see enough information as producers when we're yeah, purchasing these replacement gilts. A lot of guilts. times we'll get the birth week of the gilts. So we know what week, but if we look at the distribution of the weight of the animals we've got, you know, there will be any, you know, pigs probably from 10 pounds to 17 pounds that are born the same week of age. Something mm-hmm. influenced their difference in growth rate while they were on the sow. And probably the number one thing was birth weight. So you're probably right there. The, the obvious bottom ones probably need to be removed from that, from just that factor. Okay. Gotcha. So I guess we've, we've talked about bringing them in, getting them bred, getting them to the farrowing house. When they're in the farrowing house, what are some do's and don'ts uh, when, when it comes to guilt? Well, I think a lot of it is, is just first off is making sure they weighed at least 300 pounds when we bred them. Because if they come in under, if they were bred underweight, they're still trying to grow. Uh, we're, they're still trying to grow. And uh, those gilts cannot consume enough uh, uh, feed in the feed to continue to grow, lactate a litter of pigs, then, then, then breed back. Uh, I, I think an area that uh, we've noticed that our gilts in a lot of farms are becoming the most productive uh, parity. Uh, we've been able to load them up with extra pigs and they end up lactating them at the sacrifice of their bodies, losing extra weight, which then affects the ability for them to breed back and or in some cases be culled. So sometimes that really, really good first parity gilt uh, that weaned us 13, 14 pigs didn't get a chance to see your second litter because we, we over abused her that first litter. So some things I think we got to look at is make sure they're at that proper weight of breeding. Uh, when they're coming up before the pharaoh house, I think we need to be making sure those, those gilts are getting some bump in their dais that last uh, couple weeks. There's still enough data that tells us we can bump a, a young parity animal the last couple weeks and feed, influence the birth weight and the size and, the, and, and stuff of that pig that they're having on the first litter. So we can still do that. Uh, getting her ready, making sure that, uh, that, that she has her feet and leg structure is right. If she's got an issue with a, broke, with a hurt dew claw or a toe or something, again, it's going to affect her ability to get into the crate and eat feed. 
Uh, I've got a lot of farms now that uh, we're switching to lactation diet uh, pre-feral uh, as far as two weeks in some cases. Again, transitioning dieting so the guilt when she gets to that feral house is already on the diet she's going to lactate on. She switched her system over to producing more milk. And some of the studies showed higher colostrum that we have availability for those pigs. Um, then making sure that tipping those gilts. I uh, highly recommend uh, temperature be taken the day after they feral. She's got a temperature. She needs to be treated immediately, not waiting till day three or four when, well, she's not eating well, yeah. you know, and uh, now we're going to have to probably replace her and put her pig somewhere else. So uh, $30 thermometer in a few seconds, the day after she feral, whether it's a gilt or a sow, is a necessity today to, to monitor her to make sure she's going to be okay. And then it's to getting optimum feed intake. Whatever you can do to optimize their feed intake during lactation. You know, I have some farms that are on batch farrowing, and uh, we, we are able to, on batch farrowing, to isolate the gilts away, the P1s, put them on a, gilt, a better diet, a high-density diet, and I've really seen huge influence on that of a higher percentage of them weaning pigs, a higher percentage bred back by day seven, and weaning bigger pigs. It just says... Uh, on some of these sow diets, she can intake enough nutrition daily to maintain her body and raise her pigs. So uh, I envision down the road that we'll have two lines in, in lactation where we'll have a high-density diet, a low-density diet, and we'll mix that. We'll start out with the P1s, a high-density. Uh, the uh, mid-parities will be a mix, and the older parities on the low-density to reduce cost because of high intake. And I think mm -hmm. we've got to start to do more things like that to recognize I'd like to see her see more than one or two litters. We got it. We got that first litter sets that precedence on what she's going to do. And then I guess one other thing within the farrowing house that you have some new employees who are seeing these high performing gilts. They're doing great. They're weaning big pigs. They're pushing a lot of them out the door. What's the danger of using those gilts as a nurse sow? Uh, well, that, that when, we, when we take that litter off, she's going to probably lose some more weight. So uh, I'm really regimented. If we're going to use a nurse, uh, it's going to be a two or a three, which has already had the experience. She's milked. We want to get the gilt back. We want to get her on as much feed as she can intake from weaning until she's bred to try to get her to cycle back quick, breed back, and stay in the farm. So I'm not – the gilts are – all I'd like to see there is that they lactate as many pigs or uh, many pigs as they have available functional nipples for that first three or four days. And so we make sure those nipples are functional throughout her lifetime. But after that, she needs some relief. And some of these farms that are moving to a little bit older weaning ages, it's going to be difficult for these P1s to lactate 26, 28 days and then be able to come and stay in the farm. So we got to be cognizant of that as we try to do some things that their bodies just won't do. And it, it may be just simple as what I said a while ago. They need to be on a higher density diet, higher energy, higher amino acid just to make them go through the rigors of that first litter. Gotcha. So one other thing that's going on right now in the industry it's, that's kind of taking everybody's attention is Prop 12. Uh, <laughs> Prop 12 compliance, Prop 12 renovations, uh, continual changes in kind of the expectations of what that all means. When it comes to guilt development and preparation, will the changes that Prop 12 are bringing to various facilities change or affect the way that we might approach development or preparation? Uh, what so far I've reviewed on the Prop 12 and I'm working with some producers looking at the options, it's definitely gonna raise our cost. 
you know, uh, we're, we're having to put animals now that we normally would put in a crate, leave them a few days, breed them and put them in a pen. They've got to have 24 square feet from the day we wean them until we move them to a pen. So uh, we're adding all this extra open space so that they can get together and socialize at a cost. And so I think gilt development will be even more critical to try to get one litter or two litters more out of those gilts to reduce that overall cost. So I think it's even become more of a standard now to make sure I, the high quality gilt gets to the breeding area, gets bred, and we do everything we can to get her through that first litter so she becomes a two, three, or a four force. And so I think it's going to emphasize the, the, even more that gilt development's a key that you're trying to make this happen. So uh, very confusing on some of the things that's out there today that people think we need to do. And uh, they just think we can just do this for nothing. And But there's cost. There's huge cost to what some of the people are going to have to do to be able to be compliant. And uh, are we going to get a premium for the pork? Maybe in the short run, but what will happen in the long run? Will it become still a commodity? So who knows what's going to happen? So a lot of people now really trying to figure out where am I going to fit in this industry? And what have I got to do or spend to be able to to stay in the industry? So very concerning to me, you know, kind of getting to my my end of my time here. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's huge stresses back on the pork industry, even the livestock industry. Some of the things that are coming up now and from the states that they want you to do, uh, it's money cost prohibitive. You know, so uh, where are we going to be out on meat protein as we go down the road and into the future? For sure. I guess to wrap things up, would you mind sharing one golden chop that you might have, uh, some feedback, a uh, life saying, whatever it might be for people <laughs> listening? Uh, my biggest thing is, is you got to be passionate about whatever industry you're in. You got to be 120% end of doing the best job you can for the customers and producers that you work with every day to make them successful, which then helps you feel very successful that I did my best and I helped an industry. And I'm kind of going out that way. I think I've dedicated a lot of time and my energies and I feel good that I've, I've been participating in the, in, the, in the pork industry and that I think I've helped some people do a lot better job. And from what I've heard, that's very true. A lot of people say that you've helped them a lot of times in a lot of different ways. Thank you for joining us on the Popular Pig Podcast. We, we really appreciate your, your expertise and, and sharing those insights. It's been my pleasure. And uh, anytime you want to do it in the future, let me know. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. Therefore, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com and subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are available. Today's episode is brought to you by sponsors like SwineTech. Leverage the power of computer vision, voice recognition, and real-time behavioral monitoring to reduce mortalities and labor inefficiencies in the farrowing house. For more information, visit swinetechnologies.com.